Let me begin, if I may, with, uh, with an apology. Not mine, but someone else's. A friend of mine recently went to a show in the West End by an illusionist and mind control expert called Darren Brown. Anyone heard of him? Darren Brown, yeah. Well, I hadn't heard of him um, until she mentioned him, but I did look at his website, and I was particularly struck by one of his personal posts in his blog. And I was struck because it had the headline, I'm terribly sorry. And in this post, Darren apologizes at length to his fans for his inability to meet them after every show, to sign autographs, pose for photos, etc. And he gives his reason as, it's to protect my voice during an exacting tour schedule. Now, I've got a huge amount of sympathy for anyone whose job involves quite a lot of speaking loudly, and any strain can be quite problematic. I know that, but... You know, the more I thought about this, you know, I would have thought that Darren Brown, of all people, should be more than capable of convincing his fans that, in fact, he had turned up <laughs> for the after-show frivolities, even when, in fact, he hadn't. But, you know, Darren is not a frivolous man. And his apology ends up being rather earnest. He gets a bit carried away as it goes on, and he says that whilst he hopes that everyone will understand, he is sure that there are some of his fans who, for whatever reason, will be unable to summon any understanding and will treat this as me just not being bothered yet again. So there's Darren Brown, and I begin with his apology. And apologies, understandings, forgiveness, caring about others... Those are some of the themes that we're going to reflect on in this time together. And I think we'll see a very different pattern emerge to that which forms the more standard currency of our culture today and Darren Brown shows. We're continuing in our sermon series on Jesus in deeds and words today. And last week we heard about the calming of the storm and the healing of the demon-possessed man in illustrating Jesus' power over natural elements and the spiritual world. You see, step by step, Matthew is building the case for Jesus as that apparent contradiction, the God-made man, someone who's both divine and human, and why he is the one that was sent to save the world. And today's passage very much continues with the next step in that sequence. It is... Jesus, a human figure in every way, saying and doing things that only God can do. And Matthew invites us, his readers, listeners, to believe that Jesus is God but on earth. So accordingly, I thought it might be good to try something a little bit different this morning, just a different way, if you like, of approaching this text. So in the first part of my sermon... Wherever Matthew refers to Jesus, I'm going to substitute the word Jesus with the word God. That is, after all, the case that Matthew's making. And we'll try that and see how it sounds. And then the second part of my sermon, we'll look at the whole cast list of human actors in the story. You know, the paralyzed man, his friends, the teachers of the law, 
and will substitute references for them with the words I or we as a way of kind of understanding what's going on in human hearts and maybe in ours too. Many of us might have been reading Celebration of Discipline this week and Richard Foster talks about the power in meditation of placing ourselves in the story of Scripture a little to make it more personal. So it appeals to more than our intellect, but also to our feelings and our hearts. So what we're going to do is a little bit like that. And you'll need your Bibles open, please, on page 973 to follow it, because I'll be making plentiful references to the text as we work our way through. So first, that focus on Jesus, that focus on God, and replacing the word God for Jesus, if you like. Well... The first thing that happens if we switch those words is that we get a kind of immediate bump right there in verse 1. God stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Right, that's implying, isn't it, that God had a body, had feet, could step somewhere, might be contained in a boat, possibly steer it, and that he had a hometown. Now, to our ears that these days... That's a bit like saying that God got on the K3, took a seat, and got off at Roehampton Vale, where he lived. It's like saying that, except to the listeners of the time. Now, for that to be true, God would have to be completely human, capable of all everyday interactions, and have a home amongst us, and he would have needed an oyster card as well. Can you see, Matthew takes every opportunity to point out that Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh, in other words. Every bit of him human, every bit of him God. Let's try the next bit. Go to verse 2. The bit where the paralyzed man is brought to Jesus. His friends had heard of this amazing, amazing healing man and trusted that their friend could be healed too. So, substituting the names again, first, God saw their faith. Then later on, in verse 4, talking about the teachers of the law, knowing their thoughts, God said. Both of those phrases I've picked out there identify something similar. One implying that God can see faith inside the human heart, and two, that he can know others' unexpected thoughts, even those who are not on his side. We call this often God's omniscience, that quality of God which is to know and to see all. Substituting God for Jesus there helps us to remind ourselves that Jesus shares in God's all-seeing, all-knowing attributes. So, the God in Jesus can steer a boat, have a hometown, and see inside the human soul. What else? Let's try verse 2 again. This time the phrase, God said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that, for that bit to be true, God clearly would have to have the authority to forgive sins and to care about that forgiveness applied in the life of a single individual. Well, in the Christian faith, we believe that a sin is primarily something that goes against God's will. So God 
can forgive that sin. sin. It's de facto correct. But it's the God in Jesus here that makes that forgiveness personal. Take heart, son. You don't get a lot more personal than that. We see this as God's compassionate nature expressed in and through Jesus. Jesus, if you like, gives God's universal love the human touch. Jesus gives God's universal love the human touch. Finally, we'll go to verse 6. And let's read it as God has authority on earth to forgive sins. So God said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. God in Jesus has the authority and the desire to give us the ultimate healing, the more difficult of the two here presented, the forgiveness of sins. That's making the point that Jesus shares in God's ultimate authority, that what God can do, Jesus also can do. So, substituting God for Jesus just brings a little bit more sharply into focus that God and Jesus can step in a boat, see inside the human soul, care for the individual, whilst having the ultimate authority of God to forgive sins. Okay, so far. Well, aside from Darren Brown... This week has also been a week for shows for me. On Thursday evening, I went to the Rhoda McGraw Theatre in Woking to see Winston Churchill's school's fantastic production of Les Miserables. Now, I must be the only remaining member of the UK population to have never seen the show, the film, never seen the film either, apart from a two-minute extract, or heard any of the songs, believe it or not because I don't know about Susan Boyle or anything like that. And I was very impressed, as no doubt the rest of you have been over the years. Now, I had lunch on Friday with an old friend who'd seen the show in the West End 18 times, believe it or not. And we talked about what it is to place ourselves in that story. And for those of you that don't know, we've often used a two-minute scene from the film on the Alpha course here. It's to help course members place themselves in that story, and specifically the scene where Jean Valjean steals silver from the bishop's home, receives instant forgiveness, and seeks to repay the grace that he's received by leading a life that's good and helpful to others. And it's a great message, because we all need God's forgiveness, as we'll explore in a moment. Sometimes we need to forgive each other, too. We all have that power, at least. As the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Grace received equals grace given in the equation. In forgiving Jean Valjean, the bishop's earthly forgiveness is a mirror, though, of the much greater cosmic forgiveness that we receive from God. The things indeed in our passage today, the forgiveness that God in Jesus brings. So let's return to that forgiveness and that need for forgiveness and pick up the second part of my talk, which looks, if you like, at the sin in the human heart and the sin 
in us. And this second part of the sermon isn't about uh, someone else, it's about us, because this time we're going to substitute the main characters in the story, their thoughts, actions, words, and make them personal to us, to you and to I. Not because we did them, not because we have done them or are the same people as these people are or would behave the same necessarily, but as a way of placing ourselves in the story and allowing God to speak to us in that place. So let's give it a go and see where it takes us. Verse 2. Let's say we brought to him a paralyzed man. What if we were the ones bringing in one of us on a mat for Jesus to heal? Haven't many of us done that at one time or another? Even in a short prayer, brought someone before him for God's healing touch to be applied. That's one of the main reasons we pray in intercession or prayer ministry or go to morning prayer or all the other forms of private prayer, prayer in small groups, to bring others before God so that he may work in them. But it, in this case, is the paralyzed man that they bring before him. Now, what if we were he? Some of us may have direct experience of the pain and difficulty and the tragedy of immobility, a loss of control, ourselves or in our families. And that's hard sometimes to be a place in which we can trust God or have faith in that situation. For many of us, therefore, it's more difficult to imagine ourselves actually being the one on the mat. But there is one notion that I want to share with you, and with, when it, with which many of us might find it possible to relate, I believe. And it's about sin. Now, in my extensive experience, sin comes in a few categories. Sometimes my sin is unconscious. I don't know I'm doing it. A tiny bit of resentment here, anger with another which subsides quickly. Sometimes my sin doesn't seem that serious to me. You know, if I use a bit of bad language at home, that's seldom heard. Or my irritability is saved for a private scream in the car. Yet sometimes our sin can be the opposite. It can be such a significant departure from God's will, it's a conscious act of disobedience. It may be even systematic something we keep on doing and doing. We've got so good at keeping that to ourselves or limiting its impact. Or we fool ourselves that it's not sinful after all, that it's even merited or deserved or a natural response to our circumstances or the amount of pressure that we're under. Whatever it is, our response to a particular individual, maybe, an illicit relationship, destructive habits, things that harm others. We can ourselves become unable to act and take the next step with God that we know that we should or would like to. We become, in effect, spiritually immobilized by our sin. Now, that's the kind of sin that maybe only God can address. Our own efforts never seem to be quite enough. 
all the guilty feelings that we might have, the best intentions to improve, the mitigating strategies that we employ, don't always cut it. We actually need to be carried. We need to be carried before God so that he can forgive and heal us as only he can. We need to hear those words. Take heart, child. Take heart, child. Your sins are forgiven. Get up, take your mat, and go home. So if we substitute those words and say, my friends brought God a paralyzed person, and that person was me. Those substituted words help remind us of the brokenness in us all. Now that thought may be something that you struggle to relate to, to yourself right now. It's something you might have experienced in the past, or it might be a reality for you now. If that's the case, I urge you to bring or to keep bringing God into that equation. Through prayer personally, through prayer with others if that's relevant. But be brought before him and allow him to do his work. Now there are other actors too right in the center of this story. The teachers of the law. Now, they're just a bunch of Jewish fundamentalists, aren't they? So nothing to do with you or I, right? Well, maybe. Yet, their response is faithful to much that they'd learnt about the nature of God in his will through his word. But if we put ourselves in their place, they represent perhaps the part of us that opposes Jesus' goodness as it's revealed to us, that thinks he can't really be God, or that it's too good to be true, or the Gospels dress it up, that the resurrection story has flaws, um, that the claims that people now make from, well, it just can't be that way. That's not how God works. Might we ever say to ourselves, this fellow is blaspheming? Well, if not that, might we feel threatened sometimes by Jesus? He certainly threatens that part of our sin which we secretly want to hold on to, certainly. So you see, putting ourselves in the shoes of these different actors might show that we can help bring others before God, be before him ourselves in our ingrained sinful habits, but also help us to recognize that spirit of denial that can exist within us that resists accepting Jesus fully. Can you imagine how the paralyzed man must have felt when he's told to get up and walk? Get up and go home. You see, that's what the cross does. It brings our sins before him, small ones, disabling ones, but we're released from their power by the cross, absolved in God's eyes, Whatever they've been, conscious or unconscious, serious or mild, we're free. We come back, of course, because we can't escape sin. It's in our nature. Jean Valjean didn't lead a pure life afterwards, but he intended to lead one that honored the grace that he'd received. On the moment, we're going to 
go through the process of making our repentance, whatever that is today, personal in confession. But you know, confessing is never left hanging. It's always mirrored in that moment of release, in that moment of absolution, which allows us to walk free again. But before that, we'll quickly look at the crowd's reaction and make it ours like this. So, final point, really. In verse 8, When we saw this, we were filled with awe, and we praised God, who had given such authority to man. I think a natural response there to a healing miracle is to be filled with awe. How did that happen kind of reaction. And the healing of being in the presence of unique powers. So the crowd are filled with awe, amazement, fear, wonder at what's happened. And it's not difficult for us, perhaps, to imagine being in the same place. And their awe turns to praise of God. But we're told one other thing too. And perhaps it's something that we all do from time to time, to slightly misdirect our praise, slightly. Here the crowd assume that God has given his authority to man to perform this wonder. But it's not any man, is it? That unique authority to forgive sins is given only to God in Jesus. That healing power may be granted as it later is in the book of Acts, to Jesus' disciples. But only Jesus can forgive sins. Only, him, only to him is that authority given. That's why when you hear an absolution in any of our services, Philip, I, uh, Mike, whatever, we're not empowered to forgive sins. The words most commonly used are, Almighty God who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy on us. Pardon and deliver us from all our sins. It's God who forgives. God in Jesus alone, sharing in that power to bring healing to a broken world. The crowd came close, but not quite close enough. So it's with eyes and hearts turned towards Jesus that I'll now close. And I'll close thinking about those words. Take heart, son, Child, your sins are forgiven. I recently wrote on my blog on celebration of discipline that I'd meditated on those words and that that had taken to me, me to a place where, well, as I was before God in meditation, those words became to me no longer theology, no longer the theory of forgiveness. They became personal. And I was moved to ask, even the time that I did such and such. And I heard again, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. I was prompted to say again, and even the times that I've, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And I began to sense a rhythm. And I can only describe it as the motion of the waves crashing on a shore. With each ebb, with each movement of repentance, forgiveness and grace flowed inexorably back, cancelling, cleansing, crossing out. For me, the intellectual knowledge of God was surpassed by something else, an experience of God's grace in Jesus. 
theory became practice. The universal became personal. The healing power of God received its, its human touch. Well, we're all going to have the chance now to share in that to journey together. We're going to go on a journey for the remainder of the service, which Philip's going to lead us through, a journey of confession and forgiveness. Amen.